the heck is happening to Democrats with Latino voters? Hello, everybody. I'm David Schuster, and welcome to the conversation. There was just a special election in Texas, the 34th Congressional District. The Democrat essentially vacated the seat. This is a perhaps one of the most Latino districts in the United States, a strong Democratic stronghold. Joe Biden won the district by four points because of redistricting. The Democratic advantage was plus 15, and yet. The Republican just won the seat, beating the Democrat. Here to talk about what is going on is Chuck Rocha. He is a president of Solidarity Strategies. He's a podcast host, a New York Times opinion contributor, also was a senior advisor for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Chuck, thanks for joining us. What happened in Texas 34? Well, like most things in Texas in my home state, it's complicated. And let me explain. So the congressman that was there, Philemon Vela, retired. And now he's a lobbyist here in DC. So that caused, because our laws say in every state you have to have a special election because a seat can't stay open for more than 90 days. But what's happened is the seat has been redistricted and there's already been a primary to fill the, the seat for full time that will happen in November. But the special election was run under the old lines before it was redistricted. So it was just, as you said on your intro, a D plus four, D plus five seat. And it underperformed in the last presidential election, even though Congressman Vela overperformed the Joe Biden number by almost 10 points, again, to your point. So we need to really keep that in mind when we think about this district is much different than it will be in November. We're, again, very complicated. Stay with me here, boys and girls. The incumbent congressman next door in McAllen, Vicente Gonzalez, is moving over to run in the much more Democratic seat because they made this seat really a D plus 15 for the November election because they made the McAllen seat way more competitive and an R plus one. And he didn't want to run there. He'd rather run in the safer seat. Plus his buddy, Philemon, was going to retire anyway. So in this special election, in this race, nobody really showed up to vote in a D plus five seat. And guess what? The woman who won the Republican primary in the regular March primary also ran in the special election. Congressman Vicente Gonzalez could not because guess what? He's still serving in Congress next door. So she ran in her primary head one. She ran in the special election against a really no-name former, former county commissioner named Sanchez. And she wins a historic race, and to your point, David, in the second most Latino district in the United States, which should have sent shockwaves to the Democratic Party, even though it's a special election. Even though the DCCC and the House leadership are like, oh, she'll just be there for six months because there's no way she can win it uh, in November, which is probably true. It's the signal that it sends and things that should really be worrying Democrats. Well, and to that point, I mean, a lot of Democrats point out, hey, you know, Republicans spent over a million dollars. The Democrats didn't really spend any. To your point, they just sort of figured, oh, this is just a wash for the next you know, six months, so why bother? But again, um, the message that it sends about Latino voters, I mean, where are Latino voters? Well, where they are is they're up for grabs. What we've seen is that they're not a reliable base vote for the Democrats anymore. And guess what? We may win this seat back in November, and we should. And Vicente's an incumbent. He's represented that area for a long time. He's probably going to win. But the thing that's really shocking is that there's five or six other congressional seats that look just like it that Democrats could lose. So it's, it should send shockwaves throughout our party. And what is it that's going on with the Democratic Party? I mean, why are these races close? Why are the why are the Democrats in danger of losing in Latino districts? I think it's a number of reasons. One is is that for the first time in my 30 year career, Republicans are competing for the vote. People are always like, well, the Republicans now have a great message for 
Latinos. Well, that's really not true. It's just that they're just now started showing up and competing for the vote. And so that's the biggest difference right now is you have that combined with Democrats really taking our vote for granted and not really having any culturally competent uh, campaign consultants. So what I mean by that is there's all these congressional seats that are up that are heavily Latino, that are marginal seats like 50-50 Democrat and Republican, yet none of them have a Latino campaign manager. None of them have a Latino-owned media firm or mail firm. And what that means is you probably lose some of that cultural nuance on how you really get that vote out compared to a white vote. Because if you run the same old election every single time and hope for different results, you're gonna be shocked. Where does the issue of immigration stand with the Latino community? Uh, is it you know, the number one issue? Uh, there's some Republicans who claim, oh, Latinos you know, are just as angry about immigration and, and open borders as they claim as anybody else. It's different from district to district. In this race that you just described, David, in the Texas 34th, it sits smack dab on the border in Brownsville, Texas, just across the border from some maquiladoras, where you've seen the immigrant caravans come in and where you've seen Donald Trump go down and talk about building his wall. Most of the folks down there work for the border agencies, they work for oil companies, they're a little more conservative. So it's just not the same as looking at immigration in Miami or looking at immigration in LA or Arizona. It's different district by district. Uh, and so I think you have to nuance your campaign like I tell Democrats all the time. It sounds like the Democratic Party, though, is still pretty far behind in terms of connecting with Latino voters, in terms of understanding some of the nuances district by district. Are you optimistic that the Democrats can turn this around by November, or is this sort of a systemic institutional problem right now in the party? I feel very bullish about the Senate and some of the governors. I think that the Senate campaign committee, the Senate super PACs are doing an outstanding job in places like Arizona and Nevada. They have already outspent the Republicans in Spanish language communication by almost 15 to one. So those are good signs that the Senate has woken up. They're taking this, 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 this issue very, very much uh, as very important to them, and they're doing something about it. What I'm worried about is the House campaign committee and what's been happening in the congressional races. Those what's really bothers me. A lot of people, of course, concerned right now about guns and gun policy in Uvalde, where the mass shooting happened and 19 children were killed. That's an 80% Latino district. And as I understand it, there were no Spanish news conferences for people there, which is sort of shocking. You're part of Nuestro PAC, which is running an ad now, a Spanish language ad on guns. Tell me about it and what are you doing with this? Thank you for bringing that up. We're gonna go up actually tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. with the first in the national history of a Spanish language radio ad taking Republicans on head on for their support for the NRA and for the lobbyist money that the NRA brings into the US House. There's not been any communication to your point earlier, David, to the Latino community who a lot of times get left out, especially when it comes to language nuance. And so we're gonna run a Spanish language ad tying the Republicans to what they love to be tied to, which are guns and the NRA, to make sure people know that the NRA is backing Republicans, that Republicans refuse to do away with the assault rifles. They, they will not do away with 18-year-olds being able to buy machine guns. And we're going to communicate that to the national Latino digital buy to make sure that Spanish-speaking Latinos know that Republicans are the reason that most of this continues to happen because they do not want to do anything about it because they're in the pocket of the NRA. And because of the nature of Uvalde, as I said, does this issue in your view resonate perhaps more with the Latino community now than it might have say two months ago? There'll be a lot of pictures of little brown babies 
that should have not lost their lives in a community that's 87% Latino in our in our commercial. Because we need to honor those people to make sure they did not die for nothing. And when in our communities, whether it's Uvalde or I'll take you back to when some hateful person went to El Paso mm. and shot Latinos because of things that Donald Trump had said or messaging that was out there. I won't put that entirely on the president at the time. But it's just these instances in our community where 40, 50% of them only get communication in Spanish and nobody's really talking to them. We want to make sure that when it comes time to blame somebody, that there's a fair fight and they know who's really taking all the money from the NRA. I've heard from a couple of Democratic strategists who suggested because the Senate seems to have this compromise now on gun restrictions and giving more money to the states for red flags, that it sort of takes the wind out of the sails out of the issue, even though the Senate still can bring itself to your point to raise the minimum age from 18 to 21 for AR-15s. But is perhaps the, the messaging on guns right now and gun safety legislation, is it more difficult in part because people will look up on the news and say, but wait a second, I thought I thought there was some sort of deal. I thought we're getting some new restrictions. What you just described, David, is exactly why we did the ad. We are not going to let the Republicans have a free pass on this issue by saying, oh, we gave a little money to mental health or oh, we, we did this little thing on background checks. That's a free pass for them when they have forever said that we cannot do away with assault rifles, which is a big part of this. I'm hearing a cowboy hat with a funny Texas accent. I've had guns since I was 13 years old and responsibly know how to handle them. There is no point in my life that I need to own a machine gun or an AR-15 to go deer hunt or quail hunt or to shoot squirrels. Like we, We're not saying folks don't have the right to have guns. We ain't coming to your house to take your guns. But these guns of war should not be given out to people without thorough background checks and with lots of other things that are just common sense laws that we can't get done because of one thing. That's the NRA lobby and folks worried about losing a Republican primary by saying that they did something minuscule on guns. So we're not gonna let the Republicans have a free pass on this. Chuck, we mentioned gun safety legislation, also immigration. What are the other issues that are resonating right now with Latinos across the United States? Well, there's an anxiety in the community like there is everywhere around gas and groceries. Normally, most newly uh, immigrated communities overly feel the impact when prices go up because we're normally at the lower end of the scale of income. So seeing that, feeling that, we wanna make sure that we let people know that it's not just the Democrats that blame here, that we are trying to get things done and Republicans are standing in our way every step of the way. Unemployment is at an all-time low. There have been 8 million jobs created under Joe Biden. You don't hear Democrats talking about that. We could take a lesson out of Donald Trump's playbook and go out and beat our chest a little bit if we really want to make sure people know who's with them and who's not with them. Chuck Rocha, he was a senior advisor for the Bernie Sanders campaign. He is a contributor to the New York Times opinion section. He is a podcast host and also president of Solidarity Strategies and one of our favorites here at The Conversation. Chuck, thanks so much for doing this. Good to talk to you and we appreciate it as always. Thank you. Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. Imagine growing up on the run from the FBI and the police because of what your parents are doing. Well, that is the remarkable story of an award-winning new podcast that is out by Crooked Media. The podcast is called Mother Country Radicals. It's by Zed, Zed Dorn, his parents, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn were political radicals who were leaders of the Weather Underground, which took some responsibility for trying to bomb the Pentagon and Capitol Hill and leading protests. Here's a clip of the podcast now. 
In 1970, a 28-year-old recent law school graduate became the most wanted woman in America. Angela Davis was replaced on the FBI's 10 most wanted list this afternoon by Bernadine Ray Dorn, described as an underground leader of the weathermen. They said she was an enemy of the state. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. A homegrown terrorist. A bomb exploded early this morning in the Pentagon. J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. She's also my mother. I'm Zaid Ayers Dorn, host of the new podcast, Mother Country Radicals. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Wow, and Zaid joins us now. Uh, first of all, congratulations on how well received the podcast has already been with the Tribeca Film Festival Awards and, and whatnot. Um, first of all, Zaid, what, what was it like growing up on the run? And, and, and how did that shape your childhood? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was very strange on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, I guess like all kids, I was born into it. It took me a while uh, to realize that it was abnormal. You know, my parents never hid from me the fact that uh, that we were on the run from the FBI. They never hid that they were political radicals. But I'm not sure I knew exactly what the FBI was, why it was chasing us. You know, kind of a childhood boogeyman more than any kind of political organization I could have defined. What prompted you to do the podcast? I mean, there were people who say, oh, was this somehow therapeutic? Was this trying to get some answers from your family? I mean, what? why now? Yeah, I mean, there were two reasons, really. There was a political reason and a personal reason. And the political reason was that, you know, I started it during the Trump years. I was thinking about how young people resist a government that seems to be taking the country in a, in a dangerous direction. And of course, I had my parents as an example. And actually, as I was working on the podcast, I started talking to people, not just my parents and members of the Weather Underground, but members of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. And one thing I realized they all had in common was that they had been initially radicalized by police violence against black people here in America, by the killing of Fred Hampton, by the murder of a young kid named Clifford Glover in, in Queens in 1974. And as I was doing this research, of course, George Floyd was killed. We had this racial reckoning on the streets, and it started to seem like this is really a story that should be told now. The personal reason was my parents are getting a little bit older. I, you know, it was during the pandemic, I was separated from them. And there were questions I thought, like, if I'm ever going to ask them these questions, I should really ask them now and I should preserve their voices for my daughters and for the next generation of activists. So, what were some of those questions and what were their answers? Yeah, I mean, there were some difficult questions, questions about, you know, why they would decide to have a kid when they were fighting a violent revolution against the United States government. You know, my mom was literally on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. So it was a dangerous situation in some ways. And, and so I've always wondered, you know, even though they were very caring parents, very loving to me, I've thought a lot about why they made the choices they made. In fact, my adopted brother, Chase Boudin, is, you know, he came to us as a one and a half year old because his parents, who were my parents' friends, had left him with a babysitter and gone out to rob a bank with the Black Liberation Army as part of their revolutionary activity. So I was very aware of you know, the risks that they took and the consequences for kids. And I wanted to think about that. I'm now a father. I was curious you know, what was going through their head and how I could try to understand my own family in that context. And what did your mom say about you know, sort of your curiosity? I mean, how did she respond when you say, look, given the life you were leading, why, why have a kid? Yeah, these were complicated, sometimes painful questions and conversations we had. You know, she when I first started talking to her, I asked her, "How does it feel to have me starting this project? You know, digging into your past." And she said, "I think very honestly, um, I'm kind of 
glad you're interested in us at all. You know, the way some kids are not interested in their parents, but I'm also, it scares me. It scares me for you to dig into this and to kind of know what you, how you might think of it, how you might judge us. Um, But, you know, in the podcast, I get into these conversations with her. I mean, I not only tell the story of my mom going from, you know, a straight A student, a cheerleader, a law student, all the way to the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. But I also have these conversations with her about, you know, why did you make these choices? What was going through your head? And I think what's interesting about the podcast is you really get a sense of how somebody is radicalized, what makes a relatively ordinary middle-class kid from a small town in Wisconsin into a radical willing to go to war with their own country. And I think it's obviously relevant in terms of a lot of things that are going on today. So let's pick up right there. How did your mom from Wisconsin, a straight A student, get radicalized and go from that life to where she ended up on the FBI's most wanted list? Yeah, well, it was a complicated journey. I mean, she was an idealistic law student at the University of Chicago. She joined Martin Luther King's rent strike when he came to Chicago to try to you know, fight back against the slumlords who were um, taking advantage of, of tenants here in Chicago. And while she was marching with Dr. King, she saw you know, people in Chicago, white people throwing stones at him, hitting him with rocks and bricks. So that was part of it. You know, she also became friends with a bunch of activists here in Chicago, including Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Chicago Black Panthers at the time. They were comrades. She was running SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which was the biggest anti-war student group in the country at that time. And she was part of Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. He was putting together this group of, of you know, activist organizations that could work together across color lines. And then he was murdered by the Chicago police. So that really kind of radicalized a lot of people, my mom included, that that this charismatic, brilliant, young black activist could be killed by law enforcement. I think she felt like we have to do more. We have to put our own lives on the line if this is what our government is capable of doing. Has her perspective and the perspective of your dad, has it changed through the years now that they sort of go back and look at the 1970s and when you were very little, now that they're talking to you as as a grown up, I wonder if their perspective has changed much. Yeah, I think it's changed in some ways. I mean, they're still political radicals. They've spent their whole lives ever since we turned ourselves in, they surfaced, but they have stayed activists for the past four or five decades since then. So they still consider themselves people you know, committed to change, committed to anti-racism. They, they are determined to see a different version of America than what we have now. But I think they have regrets, you know, and I talk about this on the podcast. I ask them, you know, what they would have done differently, what mistakes they made. And, you know, they're they're pretty honest and forthcoming with me about you know what how they look back on those times now. Are there any things about how they raised you that they regret or that they wish they had done differently or any things that you wish that they had done differently? That's a good question. I think, you know, I had a a good childhood, believe it or not. I mean, even though it was strange, even though there was this kind of danger hovering over it, uh, they were good parents and they raised me in a way I always felt cared for. I felt relatively safe. It was only looking back that I realized, you know, how dangerous things had really been. I think they regret taking some of those risks. And I think some of their friends, not just my brother Chase's parents, but I talk on the podcast to Kakuya Shakur, who's Asada Shakur's daughter. Asada Shakur is still underground today in Cuba after, you know, after 40 years. And so you know, it's quite painful to talk to her daughter and realize Asada has never met her grandchildren. So a lot of these people, not just my parents, but a lot of the revolutionary people I spoke to you know, they they destroyed their families. Their work really had personal consequences. And part of the podcast is wrestling with that question of what you're willing to give up, what you believe. It sounds like it is a very sort of nuanced podcast and a very complex set of feelings. But I wonder, I mean, a lot of people may say, well, 
is does they take pride now in what his parents have done and that's part of this or is it sort of a podcast that talks about your sort of bewilderment or sort of the confusion that you had to live with? It's both, it's both. I mean, I think it's, it is very much about trying to understand people who are very different from me. I mean, I'm not a political activist in that way. I'm a writer, an artist. I, I think of myself as somebody who's interested in what drives people and the complexity of that. My parents are very committed, very certain people. And so part of it is me trying to understand where did they get their certainty? Where did, how did they decide to do these things that by any measure were very extreme, very radical? Um, but yeah, I mean, what I'm proud about, I'm not proud of every decision they made. They would be the first to admit that there were tactical mistakes along the way. But I am proud that as white activists, they put themselves on the side of anti-racism, that they worked with the Black Panthers and other groups to try to kind of change this country long before a lot of white America realized how deep the problem of white supremacy was here. And given the problem right now of a racism still across the United States and police brutality and, and on and on and on. I wonder um, if what they think, your parents, and also what you think, frankly, about Black Lives Matter and where the effort for activism and racial justice stands right now. Yeah, I think they're very encouraged, very optimistic about movements like Black Lives Matter and like Sunshine Movement and March for Our Lives, you know, young people taking to the streets to demand change today. Um, but I think you know they would be the first to say they're still learning from younger activists. You know they're looking to this next generation of people to to tell us you know how we can change the world now, how we can make it better. And I think one of the things the podcast does is try to give you know young people today both a history of revolutionary activism in the 60s and 70s, but also kind of a roadmap for the mistakes they made, the things that they did that were kind of questionable morally or tactically but also the inspiration of the kind of courage they showed. Again, not just my parents, but I speak to Angela Davis. I speak to Jamal Joseph, who was a member of the Panther 21 and the Black, and the, uh, Black Liberation Army. And these are people who really, in some ways, risked and sometimes sacrificed their futures, their families, and their lives for this cause. So I think it, it, it is inspirational in the sense of looking at people who really uh, put everything on the line to change America. Zayda, tell us all, I mean, you've got four episodes that were released at the Tribeca Film Festival, and now you're doing one a week. How long does the podcast go? How long are the episodes? Where can people find it? Yeah, there's 10 episodes in total. They'll be released every week, everywhere you get your podcast. So uh, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, Odyssey, uh, you can get them anywhere and they're free. But you know, right now we have four episodes out and then you can follow once a week to uh, see how the story unfolds. And, and it really goes to some crazy places. There are uh, bank robberies and car chases, and uh, they break Timothy Leary out of prison at one point. I mean, it's really a wild story that I think even people who know this history might be surprised by. And real quickly, are your parents listening to the podcast? They are, they're listening in real time. They've only heard the first four, um, and, and so they don't know how it ends, but they have been listening along with uh, the rest of, of the country. That's great, what a terrific project. The podcast is Mother Country Radicals by Crooked Media. Zed Dorn is, Zed Dorn is uh, behind this, uh, what a remarkable story. And Zed, thanks for joining us in the conversation, we appreciate it. Thanks David, appreciate it. You got it, and that'll do it for this show. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang here at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster, thanks for watching.